Good morning. This morning we're going to be looking at a popular parable from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. It's the parable of the prodigal son, or perhaps more appropriately, the parable of the two lost sons. Some theologians and scholars have also titled it the gracious father. This parable, as you probably know, is only found in the Gospel of Luke. We know that the Gospels are detailed accounts of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Luke seems to emphasize God's love for the poor, the tax collectors, the outcasts, the sinners, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles, while condemning the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. A key verse to keep in mind as we discuss the parable of the prodigal son comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Luke, a Gentile and a close companion to Paul, he was a physician by profession. He writes the book here to the most excellent Theophilus. He writes in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, It seemed good to me, this is Luke, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes with precision and accuracy so that his audience would know know with certainty the events surrounding the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes with the purpose of reassuring and encouraging Christian believers of their faith and trust and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we study scripture, the style or genre of the biblical text is helpful in our understanding of the biblical passage. In this text, we're examining a, a parable from the lips of Jesus. And we know that parables are fictional stories that are used to teach the audience a specific lesson or a spiritual point. Generally, the the speaker or the teacher is using the surrounding context to, uh, so that the immediate audience can relate with. And so that Jesus can, or the teacher, can illustrate or drive home a spiritual point. Identifying the immediate audience for which the parable is given is important also in our understanding of the parable of the prodigal son. In the first couple of verses of chapter Uh, 15, we can learn of the audience for which the parable is given. In verse 1 of of chapter 15, Now the tax tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we have two groups of people as the immediate audience. We have the tax collectors and sinners as one group, And we have the Pharisees and the scribes as the other group. So to state it another way, we could say the the ungodly or the godly, the ungodly and the godly, or the unrighteous and the righteous, two groups of people here, the social outcasts of the day and the religious elite of the day. It's also worth noting that the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled or complained about Jesus We see that here in the opening verses of chapter 15. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The grumbling by the Pharisees and scribes reveals their their attitude and belief towards a righteous person who associates and eats with sinners. In those days, eating with someone usually indicated an, an acceptance of that individual. The context of the parable Definitely another helpful factor in our understanding of the text here or the parable of the two lost sons. In verses 3 through 10 of chapter 15, 
we can observe the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. These two stories are celebration stories, salvation stories. That which was once lost is now found. The parable of the lost sheep is not directly about the lost sheep, but about the sinner who repents and places their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. As verse 7 indicates, there is much rejoicing and celebrating over the one penitent sinner than over 99 righteous persons who have no need for repentance. In the parable of the lost coin, the point is not only about the finding of the lost silver coin. The finding of the coin represents the celebration and joy that is realized in heaven when one sinner repents of their sin and places their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. There is much to celebrate since this contrite and repentant individual was once lost in a spiritual condition of darkness and death, but now has been found, brought from death to life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't opened already to your Bibles, you can do so. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version here this morning. You can follow along as... I start and begin in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when, he, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you again for this morning, our time to gather together to sing praises and hymns, to worship together, Lord God. We thank you uh, for the living word of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. We thank you for his work that he has accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you for the written word of God, Lord. Your inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word, Lord, we thank you for these great truths. And I pray this morning, Lord, uh, 
that you would help us in our understanding of the text. Um, May the Spirit bring comfort and encouragement and conviction, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us with understanding. Give us the grace and the strength to obey your commands, Lord, and to apply biblical truths in our homes, in our relationships, in our families, and within our church, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that our time together would be pleasing and honorable to you. And I pray, Lord, that let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Jesus, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we have um, three characters here in our parable, the father and the two sons. Each character in the story represents someone else. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. The older son represents the self-righteous or religious elite, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees. The younger son, as we can see in verses 11 through 12, comes to the father with a request. Seems like a bold, bold request. In fact, <clears throat> it's probably understood by the audience as an outrageous request. The younger son is asking for his inheritance while the father is still alive. This is likely a bold and outrageous request because the younger son is basically wishing or desiring that his father be dead so that he can receive the inheritance that is due to him. In Jesus' ministry, he seemed to have a striking ability to shock his audience, and I believe that this request of the younger son would have probably shocked the, the scribes and the Pharisees who were listening in. And I think the request can be viewed just as shocking in our culture today. How would you feel or what would you think if you had a son or a daughter that came to you with such a request? Does not seem to be the norm for a child to ask for their parents' inheritance while they are still alive. And if they do, well, the request is probably viewed with some, some level of suspicion and negativity. The younger son does not want anything to do with the father, nor does he desire any sort of identification with his family. He only desires to have his share of the inheritance that is due to him, to spend it on on what he wants to do. The focus of the younger son here is an inward focus, a selfish focus, as he seeks to cut ties from his family. In his request and actions that follow, he's likely going to burn many bridges with members of his own family. Our desires, our wants, our lust speak to the motives and intentions of the heart. All of us have some sort of want-to problem. We may desire or want comfort, pleasure, control, convenience, good health, obedient children, a spouse who respects me, a spouse who loves me unconditionally, a robust financial plan, and the list goes on. We have many wants and desires, but the ruling and controlling desire in our hearts for all of us ought to be in step or line with 2 Corinthians 5.9 and 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. In the background of this parable, we need to keep in mind the heart motives or the desires of each character. For sin and obedience are always matters of the heart. It's also worth noting that our thinking, our theology, our beliefs, which stem from the heart, they drive and influence our behavior. And this biblical principle seems to originate from the garden, garden in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6, we see that Eve pursued, that's the action, that's the behavior, what she believed or perceived to be pleasing or or delightful. The request of the younger son seems to be disrespectful, especially in a culture in which honoring their mother and the father was held in high regard. The request also displays a lack of love and gratitude for 
the father who has provided for him over many years. The scribes, the Pharisees, would have considered this request a shameful and reprehensible request since the younger son is not entitled to anything while the father is still alive. Seems likely that the inheritance would have been in the form of real estate or possessions. But the younger son here, he's not interested in cultivating the land or managing possessions. He desires the cash value for the land and the possessions in order to spend it on what he desires. Another factor here that may have been shocking is in verses 11 through 12, is that the father grants the younger son's request. This too was probably shameful and, or shocking by the scribes and the Pharisees. For what type of self-respecting father would grant such a request? The request seems to beg for some sort of disciplinary action, or at the very least, a sit-down between the father and the son. Family members and townspeople who had heard about the request may have expected some sort of disciplinary action, but the father graciously grants the son's request, and he divides his property between his two sons. According to Jewish law, the older son would have received two-thirds of the inheritance, while the younger son would have received one-third. Typically, the inheritance is not distributed until the father is dead, but in this case, the father divides his inheritance between the two sons. In verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. <clears throat> so the younger son sets to go out to a foreign country. While living in that foreign country, he squanders the father's inheritance in reckless, sensual living. This younger son, probably the free spirit, the rule breaker, the one who no longer desires to be identified with his family, he sets out to a new world, a foreign country, to perhaps create a new identity for himself. But the younger son definitely seems to be seeking and desiring to find his joy, his contentment, his satisfaction in worldly pleasures and treasures. You may know people who are like the younger son, or maybe you yourself have had a past like the younger son. As I mentioned earlier, the younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. And this group typically participates in sexual immorality, vulgar language, lying, perhaps abuse of alcohol or drugs. For these types of folks, the sensual lifestyle is appealing, and they seem to be searching for the next greatest thrill or emotional high driven by feelings and the experience rather than the word of God. Now, where do you suppose is the heart of the younger son? What is he valuing and treasuring in his heart? For we know in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 14, we can see that after the younger son spends the father's inheritance on worldly pleasures, a severe famine strikes the country, and now he finds himself in great need. Due to his circumstances, the younger son seeks to hire himself out to one of the citizens of that country, likely a Gentile employer. And we can observe from the text what kind of work the younger son has gotten himself into. He may have been the third man in command back on his father's farm, but now he is a, just a lowly shepherd of swine. Now to the Jewish person, this type of work would have been the most humiliating or the most shameful. I mean, can it get any worse for this young man? Pigs are considered unclean from the Jewish perspective, and to work with swine would have been the most demeaning and demoralizing job. 
It's reminded of Luke chapter 14, verse 11, that reads, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Perhaps God is teaching the younger son a thing or two about pride and humility. Scripture states, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we must remember the biblical principle that disobedience in general is going to bring difficulty and hardship, pain, suffering. While obedience with the right heart motives is going to bring joy, delight, and peace. Of course, we know there's no guarantee that obedience brings a pain-free lifestyle this side of eternity. But we should not be all that surprised of the younger son's plight since we know from the scriptures that we reap what we sow. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So we are responsible for our actions and decisions, and we have control over our responses for living in a fallen, broken, sinful world. The younger son likely volunteered himself for this position in the hope that he would have been paid. The citizen who hired him was not under any obligation to pay him for his work. We can see that the younger son is in a desperate condition. No one gave him anything, it reads at the, verse, at the end of verse 16. The younger son is completely destitute, penniless, poverty-stricken, reduced to the status of a beggar, seeking or hoping to be fed alongside the pigs. Have you ever been in a desperate condition before? Where do you turn? Who do you turn to? Who or what do you put your hope and trust in? If you are a non-believer here this morning, do you recognize your desperate condition before a holy, just, and righteous God? Do you recognize your sin against your gracious and loving Heavenly Father? If you do, we would encourage you to repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation to rescue you from the power of sin and darkness. Fellow believers, do we recognize our desperate need for Jesus each and every day of our lives? Who do you turn to when facing a trial or a difficulty or a conflict or a medical crisis? Whether we've walked with the Lord for three years or for 30 years, we ought to see our desperate need for Jesus and his empowering, redeeming, and rescuing grace every moment of our lives. I think this idea of recognizing our desperate condition or need of Christ echoes one of the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Picking up the text again in verse 17 of Luke chapter 15. The younger son here, we see he comes to himself, comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the younger son, he definitely comes to his senses here. He begins to realize his desperate condition. He thinks about returning home and begins to rehearse in his mind what he's going to say to his father. Notice that the younger son realizes not only his transgression against his earthly father here, but he also recognizes his sin against his heavenly father. For the text states, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This seems to be a great confession or recognition by the younger son. Our sin is always an infinite offense against a transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God. 
And our sin requires an infinite punishment, an eternal punishment. And the individual who does not repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ will experience the wrath of God forever, in eternity, in a real place called hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only means to our reconciliation with an eternal, holy, and righteous God. As quoted and stated by many before me, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Church attendance does not reconcile you to a holy, just, and righteous God. Your good deeds or performance... They don't reconcile you to a sovereign, eternal, and righteous God. Jesus is the only way to the Father. As the Bible states, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless it is through faith and the life, the death, and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. In verse 19, the younger son seems to understand that due to his actions, he's no longer worthy to be identified as a son. His request of the father is to treat him or identify him as one of the hired servants. The younger son provides for us a picture of repentance. He acknowledges and humbly confesses his sinfulness before God, and he seeks to be reconciled with his earthly father. By God's grace, he's choosing to turn away from his sinful ways, and to cast himself upon the mercy of his father. Again, in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, it's not the righteous that God has come to call to repentance, but the sick. He realizes that living as a hired servant is far better than being among the pigs and suffering from a lack of food. He's not expecting nor asking the father to reinstate him to full sonship. The son here, the younger son, seems to be aiming low. He seems to understand the shamefulness of his actions. He wants the father to treat him as a hired servant. A hired servant in those days was a day day laborer, and if the workload for that day demanded it, then day day laborers were hired for that specific day only. There was no guarantee of any work for tomorrow. These hired servants may have been considered part of the extended family, but definitely part of the lower class. The younger son, he's prepared to accept responsibility for his sinful actions and to be associated with the hired servants, not as a son. So the younger son packs up from the foreign country and heads back home. Picking up the text again in verse 20. He arose, he came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Let's not miss the response here of the father. I think the response of the father here is the main thrust or the most significant feature of this parable. As we know, each character of the parable represents another group. Younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners, the older brother representing the scribes and the Pharisees, and the earthly father here representing our heavenly father. The picture here is God the Father receiving and accepting wayward sinners by extending to them forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, just as Jesus does to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sick, and the lame. The father was likely anticipating or looking for his son to return home, since the text states the father saw him from a distance. And the father does not hesitate uh, 
to react. He runs to his younger son, embracing him, kissing his son. Now, in those days, a man of nobility or wealth, they did not run. (laughs) And in order to run to the son, the father must have pulled up his robe in order to free his legs for long strides. Exposing your legs in that culture was considered shameful or disgraceful and probably even despicable. And he may have even exposed more than just his legs, but the father was willing to bear all the shame, dishonor, and disgrace so that his lost son would be fully restored to sonship. This seems like a beautiful picture of the gospel. Can you imagine the look of the Pharisees at this point? Maybe it's a look of confusion, a look of shock, a look of disgust, maybe a look of anger. What sort of self-respecting man would run to his wayward son and love on him in this way? Perhaps the Pharisees are thinking that this son is good as dead, completely cut off from the family, which is maybe why we see some of that language in verses 24 and 32. Son was once dead, and now he is alive. And in the background of of some of the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, maybe is Deuteronomy 21. You know what happens to the rebellious son according to Deuteronomy 21? The wayward or rebellious son is to be stoned to death. Notice that the father did not think to himself that this son of mine needs to walk this road, this driveway back home with his head between his legs, right? The father does not say to himself, let this son of mine experience the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment that he rightly deserves. After all, it's it's the son who dishonored the family and placed shame upon his mother and the father. Does he not realize all the turmoil and angst that he's caused around here? Perhaps the Pharisees may have had this type of attitude or tone towards the son. Perhaps they're thinking that the son needs to be reprimanded for his deplorable actions in order to pay back the inheritance that he squandered on a sensual lifestyle. Now, there may be some some parenting principles here and applications that we can draw from by looking at the response of the father. And And I certainly think that there are some things we can pull from and apply from as parents. We ought to be gracious and loving and forgiving with our children. We need to be the visible representation of the invisible God to our kiddos. But I think we can see here that the immediate context is salvation. That which was once lost is now found. And we're going to celebrate that which has been restored. In the text, we observe that the father offers forgiveness, love, grace, and mercy freely to the penitent son. There's no discussion of a probation period, no discussion of a compensation plan to pay back what the father had lost. Father does not withhold love, grace, mercy from the son. He displays a gospel type of love for his son by running to him, embracing him, kissing him. Now, the younger son here, he didn't have a clean set of clothes when he meets the father face to face. That younger son was working with pigs. Even so, the father does not hesitate to embrace his son. Seems to be a beautiful picture of the gospel. A loving, awesome response of the father. And the father loves the son and receives the son despite the son's filth, stink, and unrighteousness. God the Father sent his only begotten son to die for the ungodly, the unrighteous, in the midst of their filth and sin-stained clothes. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God the Son bearing our shame and guilt just like the Father in the parable does for the wayward son. Our Heavenly Father offers grace, forgiveness, and mercy to the wayward sinner who repents and places their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. 
Did you notice that in the text, the son does not even get to state his idea about working as one of the hired servants? Excuse me. The text does not even state that the son here mentions this idea of working about working as one of the hired servants. Father doesn't give him a chance to do so. He interrupts the son in verse 22. And the father reinstates his son to complete sonship by dressing him with the best robe, the family ring, and with sandals on his feet. The robe would likely have been the finest clothing belonging to the father and only worn on special occasions. The ring was the father's signet ring, which probably bore the family's crest. And sandals were an indication that he was not a slave or a hired servant. These items give, uh, given represent the picture that the father has completely restored his younger son with a new identity, one of full sonship and with all privileges and rights that come with sonship. The son goes from a position of complete poverty to a position of full sonship. Sounds much like our position before and after salvation. We were once enemies of God. Now we are friends of God. Once outside the fold of God and now adopted as sons and daughters. Once dressed with sin-stained clothes, but now dressed in robes of righteousness. <laughs> Romans eight, sixteen through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The father brings out the fattened calf, the one designated for special occasions only, and the family and the townspeople begin to celebrate. They rejoice because this younger son has returned. He was dead, but now is alive. He was once lost, but now has been found. Picking up the text here in verse 25, we see now the response of the older brother. So his older son is in the field. He came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the hired servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother represents the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, and I think we need to give some careful thought and consideration here to the response of the older son, since we may be more tempted to be legalistic or pharisaical rather than compassionate, gracious, and loving. The older brother here is out in the fields tending to his daily chores or responsibilities for the day. He comes close to the house to retire for the day. He hears the noise of a celebration. He recognizes that something's going on inside the house that is out of the ordinary. He questions one of the servants to better understand what the commotion is all about. The servant here seems to show more understanding of the celebration than the older brother, since he indicates that the father is celebrating over the safe and sound return of his son. Verse 28, we see that the oldest son is angry and he refuses to join in the celebration. What do you suppose here is resonating in the heart of the older brother? What is it that he's treasuring or valuing or desiring? Our emotions can be windows into the heart. And it seems here that the younger brother, the older brother, 
excuse me, is jealous or resentful or bitter at the father's gracious and merciful response towards the younger son. The father comes out, he pleads with the oldest son to come in and to eat and to celebrate in the return of the younger son. But you can hear, you can hear the pride and the self-righteous attitude or tone of the older brother in verse 29 and 30. He says, look, look, dad, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, which was probably an exaggeration. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, he doesn't even say this brother, this brother of mine, no, you're, this son of yours, dad, he's come home, he's devoured your property, wasted it with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him? The older son here, he's saying to the father, how could you do this? How could you do this to me, dad? This is totally unfair. How in the world could you offer up the fattened calf for this undeserving and despicable son of yours? I've always obeyed. I've practiced faithfulness. I've done my chores. You've never offered me a goat to celebrate with my friends. The son of yours comes home with the stink of pigs and prostitutes all over him. You embrace him. You kiss him. You give him the best robe. You celebrate with him, Dad. This youngest son of yours, Dad, he's unworthy, undeserving of your grace and mercy. I think we can see here where the focus of the older brother is. Right? I've never disobeyed your command. Where do you think the focus of the scribes and the Pharisees? Where's their focus? Does that sound something like they would say as well? The response of the older brother seems to capture the attitude and thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees towards the penitent tax collector and sinner. We know Jesus, in his ministry, he has some strong words for the Pharisees in Matthew 23 that reveal their wickedness. He says to them, you appear righteous to others outwardly, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You tithe mint, dill, cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. I think it's easy for us to maybe be trapped in a mindset similar to the Pharisees. Perhaps during a difficulty or trial or hardship, perhaps we say to God sometimes, God, what did I do to deserve this? I've always been faithful to you. I've served you and your people for X number of years. You fill in the blank, five years, 10 years, 50 years. I think we need to be careful in justifying our position before a holy, just, and righteous God based on works. This idea or sentiment definitely is rooted or founded upon performance, upon our good works. These types of tones, sentiments from the older brother, they seem to reveal an inward focus rather than a Godward focus. As believers, we are justified only because of the work and obedience of Christ, not because of our good works for the kingdom of God after our salvation. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, the older brother becomes the judge and the jury. He has usurped the father's authority and is sitting on the father's throne. He's casting judgment, casting condemnation towards his father and the younger son. The older brother here, he's taken possession of the throne of God. He's acting as if he's the all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God. This is a dangerous place to be when our attitudes, our actions display self-righteousness, pride, and resentment. We make ourselves out to be like God 
ruling, dictating, seeking to control life according, according to our own finite wisdom. I think we need to understand here that the self-righteousness and, and pride of the, the Pharisees and the religious elite is just as wicked and selfish as the sins of the wayward sinner who indulges in a reckless and sensual lifestyle. Sin or idol worship blinds us from seeing our great need, our desperate need for our great physician and savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the healthy and self-righteous have no need for a physician. Perhaps this morning we may need to confess and repent of our own idol worship, self-righteousness, and misplaced trust. The older brother, he's acting out in anger and bitterness because of the grace and mercy shown to the younger brother by the father. The oldest son is not getting what he thinks the younger son deserves. Again, the focus of the older brother is on himself, and he's guilty of playing the comparison game. Whether we, have been, whether we are children or adults, we've probably been guilty of playing the uh, comparison game before. And when we do, our focus is more horizontal, more man-focused, rather than a vertical focus or an upward focus to God, a Godward focus. The attitude of the older brother towards the father is the same attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees towards Jesus. Who does, who's this, who does this Jesus think he is? All right, he eats and drinks and associates with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. He shows them grace, mercy, compassion. He even claims to forgive them of their sins. This man is just from Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? But we know in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. There certainly seems to be some irony here. The older brother, he's removed himself from the relationship of the father. One commentator stated, the older son, it's the older son is the one who has cut himself off from the family just like the younger son did previously. The older brother separates himself from the father as he faults the father for being so kind and gracious to the younger son. The obedient son has now become the disobedient son. In similar fashion, The Pharisees separate themselves from the Son of God by finding fault in Jesus for being so gracious and kind to the social outcast of the day. The faithful sons of Jesus' day, the Jews, have now become the disobedient sons, whereas the disobedient sons, the Gentiles, are received and accepted into the family of God. Notice the father's response in verse 31. The father says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Seems like a gentle, kind, loving, compassionate response to a harsh complaint or criticism. Keeping in state with Proverbs 15.1 that states, a soft answer turns away wrath. The father lovingly and graciously reminds the older son of his current standing or status to the family, to his father. The father's response to the younger son does not change or diminish the father's relationship to the older son. The father says, what is mine is yours, and you are always going to be my son with all the benefits that come with full sonship. In verse 32, the father points out that the younger son is not just my son, but he's your brother. The Gentiles, they are your brothers, Jews. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. This is a salvation story, a story of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. 
It's appropriate and necessary to hold a feast, to hold a celebration. For there is more joy in the heavenly places over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. For we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. For we were once dead, but now we are alive. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning, Lord. We thank you for this salvation story, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would celebrate and be joyful, Lord, when one sinner repents and puts their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. May we rejoice and be glad like the heavens, Lord God, when one sinner repents. We thank you for the gift of salvation, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Let us be mindful, Lord, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Lord. I pray that you would help us to grow in humility, Lord. Help us to see our great need for Jesus each and every day. That we would be reminded, Lord, that we need to go to Christ to buy from him riches so that we can see and hear and that we can practice obedience, Lord God, that you would dress us in robes of righteousness each and every day. Help us to see our great need for you. Let us remember our state or position of poverty, Lord. May we grow in humility. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to go out in our workplaces, in our homes, to spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace and the strength to love you, to treasure to value the gift of salvation, and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.